Good morning, friends. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. And yet I'm not going to be preaching on that typical Psalm, uh, Palm Sunday text, uh, mainly because I've been involved in a men's Bible study that's been studying the book of Colossians. And a few verses have really resonated with me. Once again, they're found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. It reads as follows. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life, light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, this prayer by the Apostle Paul contains 143 words in the uh, New International Version. In the King James, it comes in at 132 words. In the New Living Translation, 171 words. In the Amplified Bible, it's a whopping 223 words. Now, I'm sure that uh, other friends, scholars, will tell you that this prayer takes up 135 words in the New American Standard, or even that the Greek text is only 109 words. But then again, Greek is a pretty efficient language. Like several of other of other Paul's prayers, it is one long sentence in Greek, filled with participles, infinitives, and clauses that seem to pile on top of each other. And even though the NIV breaks it down into three sentences, that doesn't help very much, because Paul packed a lot into these six verses. If you read it out loud, just as I did, the whole prayer takes about a minute. And I'm sure this is a Reader's Digest version in which Paul gives us a summary of what was probably a much longer prayer. You could take any phrase in this prayer and form a prayer around it. It's just absolutely dense with spiritual truth. And I want to make sure we don't get lost in the details and miss the main point. And so here is a simple outline of the prayer. It contains one request, one purpose, and four results. Well, let's start with the request. Colossians 1.9. First, Paul has only one basic request in mind. You find it there, and if you lift the key verse out and hold it up for close inspection, he is asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. That little phrase is the heart and soul of this prayer. Paul is praying that the Colossians will know the will of God for their lives. He's asking God to give them wisdom and spiritual insight so that they will know God's will. That's a very practical prayer if you think about it. I mean, almost everyone I know thinks about the will of God at one time or another. We tend to apply the phrase to the major decisions of life, you know, where to go to college, the search for the right job, the decision about getting married, which church to attend, buying a home, a job offer, going to the mission field, investing money, and having children, and on and on. Now, these are all legitimate applications of the will of God, but Paul seems to have something bigger and deeper and broader in mind when he uses this phrase. I think the key word is the word fill. In its basic form, the word means to be filled to overflowing. It also means to be engulfed or overwhelmed by something. It is the idea of fully possess or control or become the dominating influence. If a person is frightened, he's filled with fear. 
If he speaks harshly, he's filled with anger. If he's generous, he's filled with kindness. So what does that concept mean in this verse? Well, simply, if you're filled with the knowledge of God's will, then you will want what God wants for your life. In many ways, this is a very challenging standard. I mean, oftentimes, we pray, your will be done, without ever considering what these words really mean. Too often, I think we mean something like this, O Lord, show me your will so I can carefully consider to see whether it fits in my plans or not. But that's a prayer God will never answer because he does not offer his will for you to consider it, as if it were an invitation to have lunch next Thursday if you happen to be free and if you don't get a better offer. To truly say your will be done in my life means something like this, Lord, let your will be done in me whatever the cost, whatever it takes, wherever it leads. Let your will be done even if it means that my will is not done. Or let your plans go forward even if it means changing mine. I mean, to say it that way implies a huge spiritual truth that we can express in kind of a simple little syllogism. A, God has a will or desire for your life. B, but you also have a will or desire for your life. C, when you pray your will be done, you're asking that his will take precedence over your will. Now, only one will can be done at a time. Either God calls the shots or you do. Either he controls or you're in control. It's not easy to pray like that because it means giving up control of your own life. But you aren't really in control anyway. It only seems that way. It's hard to pray that prayer because it means giving up control. But that doesn't mean your life will go out of control. It just means that your life is surrendered to God's control. And this leads to some very practical questions. Do I want to know God's will so I can consider it? Or do I want to know God's will so I can do it? Am I willing to be engulfed with God's will or do I simply want to help in making a hard decision? Am I ready to love what he loves, go where he sends me, to obey what he tells me to do, to suffer when that is required, to wait when that is required, to endure when that is required, and to rejoice when that is required? I mean, have I agreed with God in advance that I will do his will even before it is revealed to me? I mean, will I take the daily small steps that are before me while waiting for the big steps to be revealed? Do I understand that the will of God is more about who I am on the inside than where I am on the outside? Am I ready for my life to change if that's what needs to happen? Friends, this is the heart of the prayer, that we might be filled to overflowing with the knowledge of God's will so that we want what God wants for us, and we do what he wants us to do. Well, let's go on to the purpose. Paul has only one purpose in mind. It's in verse 10. Uh, This is the necessary result of being filled with the knowledge of his will, and this purpose is not possible without coming to the place where we say, your will be done, nothing more, nothing less, nothing. We find it expressed this way in verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. You know, I look at that, I I just find that an astonishing statement. I mean, if you think about what it means. I mean, notice the word worthy. It comes from a root that means heaviness or weightiness. Sometimes in evaluating certain people we don't measure up to, who don't measure up to our expectation, we might actually call them lightweights. Uh, A lightweight person is someone whose contribution to life is kind of trifling, doesn't amount to much. And all of us, if we're honest, think about our own value and our own worth from time to time. I mean, since we're not going to live forever, we want to know that our time on planet Earth has mattered, 
that we didn't squander our opportunities or waste space or waste oxygen, you know, that we made a difference to someone, somewhere, somehow. And each one of us has personal failings, cracks in the souls, hidden fissures of sin and failure and doubt and compromise that we alone know about. We may put up a good front and even smile bravely on a Sunday morning, but deep inside we know that we are far from what we want to be. Sometimes those feelings of self-doubt may overwhelm us to the point where we wonder why we should even bother to get out of bed in the morning. But here we are called to do something very exciting, to walk worthy of the Lord, and so hear him say, My child, I'm pleased with you in every way. It should be noted that this doesn't happen automatically, and here we must think carefully about what we believe. In Christ, we have been fully accepted by God and adopted into his family and blessed with every spiritual blessing already. There's a sense in which God is pleased with us already because we are united by faith in his Son, and he is fully pleased with Jesus. In a related way, a parent will listen to his child play the trumpet or the clarinet and you know, miss 10 out of 11 notes. And everyone else winces, but Dad just sits there and beams and says, that's my boy or that's my girl. We all understand that sort of family pride, but there's another sort of pride that comes when a son or daughter, through hard work and years of dedication, accomplishes some great goal and brings honor to the family name. That's what Paul has in mind here. It means to live so that God is pleased. I'm going to give you an example from a few years ago. Rick Husband was the commander of the space shuttle Columbia that disintegrated over Texas. Everyone who knew him knew that he was a Christian. And before the shuttle took off on January 16th, Rick stopped the crew and prayed for them. I mean, NASA workers commented that they'd never seen a commander pray with his crew. At T-minus two minutes before liftoff, a NASA controller commented that this was a perfect day for launch. And Rick replied, the Lord has given us a beautiful day. Before the flight, he left a recorded devotional video for each of his two children. For each of the 17 days, he would be gone. That was 34 videos that he recorded so his children would not miss the daily devotions that they'd had with their dad. In a video made for his home church in Houston, he explained the values of his life. He said, if I ended up at the end of my life having been an astronaut but having sacrificed my family along the way or living my life in a way that didn't glorify God, then I would look back on it with great regret. Having become an astronaut would not really have mattered all that much. And I finally came to realize that what I really meant, that what really meant the most to me was to try and live my life the way God wanted me to and try to be a good husband to Evelyn and to be a good father for my children. Now, after the shuttle disaster, his pastor in Houston visited with uh, his wife, Evelyn. She showed the pastor documents Rick had to sign in case something tragic happened on the mission and he never returned home. The documents contained personal messages to his family members. And at the bottom of the documents, husband wrote a special note to his pastor that said, Tell them about Jesus. He means everything to me. Now, friends, Rick's husband has gone to heaven, but while he was here on earth, he lived a life worthy of the Lord. And no doubt he has heard these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. When I read that, I ask myself, What is the secret of a man like Rick Husband. Where does this sort of faith come from? I think I know the answer. Years ago, he yielded control of his life to Jesus. Everything else that happened to him flowed from that one great decision. 
Somewhere along the way, he told the Lord, I want to do your will. If it means being an astronaut, that's what I'll do. If it means going up in space and not coming home to my family, I'm willing to do what you call me to do. I don't know if he said it in those words, but that was the commitment of his heart, I'm pretty sure. I mean, you don't make the kind of impact he made without that kind of commitment. Now, Rick's husband is gone, but he left behind a shining legacy. If we want to leave behind that kind of testimony, we must first truly say, O oh Lord, your will be done in my life. No strings, no conditions, no special deals. I give you my life to do with it as you will. When we want what God wants, when we surrender our will and when his purposes become our purposes, then our lives will be dramatically changed and we will find purpose and meaning in everything that happens. Life becomes an adventure with God every day, and when that happens, our lives become joyful, visibly different, and eternally significant, and God is pleased with us. Well, finally, the result. I mean, the remainder of this prayer involves four results that will follow from walking worthy of God and pleasing Him in everything. First, in verse 10, we'll have a life that bears fruit, and second, we'll have a life that grows in the knowledge of God, and then in verse 11, we will have a life that endures in hard times. And then in verses 12 to 14, we will have a life that gives thanks continually. If we stand back and look at it, this is an amazing way to live. A life filled with good works and ever-growing knowledge of God, the ability to endure hard times with joy, and a thankful spirit for all that God has done for you. So here is the prayer. Paul prays that we might be filled up to overflowing with the knowledge of God's will. That means yielding our agenda to his control so that his purposes become our purposes. When that happens, our lives are radically changed from the inside out. We set out to please the Lord in everything, and suddenly we become difference makers in the world, like Rick Husband. We're involved in God's agenda, which means we're doing more than just taking up space until we die. Life now has purpose and meaning. We have a reason to get out of bed in the morning because we're linked with God and his kingdom work here on earth. All of this because of Jesus. He gave us an inheritance so we know we have a great future. He took us out of the darkness so we now can see things clearly. He made us citizens of his kingdom so now we have everything we need. He redeemed us by his blood so we know our sins are forgiven. Now, sometimes at the end of a TV program, you see a statement that says something like, this program made possible by General Motors or IBM or Exxon or whatever. Perhaps we should add a sentence to the end of verse 14. This prayer made possible by Jesus. After all, all that we have comes directly from him. One final word. Actually, it's a question. What is it that makes you come alive? You know something? It's right here that Paul's prayer hits us right between the eyes. For too long we have thought the will of God was boring or dull or negative or tame or something like Homework in an algebra class. You have to do it, but you don't have to like it. How wrong we are. To be filled with God's will means we are finally free to come alive. To be filled with God's will means we are finally free to fulfill our destiny. To be filled with God's will means we are freed from the tyranny of following the world's agenda for us. To be filled with God's will means we are free to risk everything for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Friend, if you have ever decide to seek God's will, your life will be many things, but it won't be boring. You will truly come alive. And guess what? The world needs people who have come alive.
I would simply add that the world needs people who have come alive through the knowledge of God's will. And that's a perfect description of the people who pray this prayer. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.